Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Thursday edition. I had to think about that a minute of Sims Chat Corner. Um, I am on my last leg of my Mafia Month tour, so to speak, and I am so elated and so very excited to be hosting Mr. Gary Jenkins today. For those of you who don't know, most of you probably will recognize him most for um, Gangland Wire, but we're also going to get into various other ventures that he has gone into as far as production, direction, actually being an author, um, his pastime, of course, in the police department. So it should be a very interesting interview. And I don't want to forget to remind everybody that tomorrow at 1 o'clock Central Standard Time, we will be hosting Wilson Ramirez, who is an actual actor um, of plethora, just a plethora of projects. So without further ado, let's not keep Gary holding, and we'll get a chance to start chit-chatting with him. Hello, Mr. Gary Jenkins. How are you? I'm good. How Hi. are you today? Um, well, I'm a little intimidated, actually. I was just speaking to uh, Susan Frito. I'm sure you're familiar with her. Mm-hmm. I am. And, yes, she was talking your praises up, like straight and sideways. <laughs> so I'm a little intimidated. <laughs> oh, good. I, I think I, I met her through Denny Griffin, I believe. They did something together. Yep. I, yep. It's been a while since I started down this path. But, uh, but it is. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, you betcha. Yes. She told me lots okay. of good things about you, so I felt very confident. And I thought, okay. yay, this is absolutely wonderful, terrific. No, not at all. Um, so I kind of wanted to start, oh, not a problem at all. And thank you so much for the for accepting to come on the show because I appreciate that. Because oftentimes, a lot of times I know for someone like yourself, it might be just, oh, I recognize that guy from the Gangland Wire thing. So hopefully today after listening to the stories and things that we're discussing, um, they'll get a chance to see that you're a little more well-rounded. Because I myself found out more information about you in digging as compared to when I first started talking to you. So it's kind of rather interesting, yeah. I have to say. Well, thank so you. First I, of all, I try. Oh, not a problem at all, actually. Um, the first thing that I wanted to ask you about is, um, if you could explain to us, one of the fundamental reasons or moments or inspiration behind, um, in case some of you don't know, of course, you had been a Kansas City police detective for quite a significant amount of time. So I guess what was the mitigating factor for jumping from being that occupation to being where you are now? <laughs> well, you know, I, I any laughs? I spent well. It's kind of a it's a little bit of a long story. Let's see. Well, we got an hour here, so uh, sure. but I won't take that long. You go. Uh, I, I, I spent about 12 years uh, in the what they call the intelligence unit, and we uh, investigated organized crime. And and then I'd gotten, you know, as a detective, and, and then you get promoted, you got to go back to the field. All, all, you know, it's not like TV. When, when a, a policeman gets promoted, he goes back into uniform, into dog watch or PM shift or something. And so I go back out as a sergeant, and I spend a couple years out there, and I... I actually then ended up having uh, going into the uh, tactical response unit or the SWAT teams for a couple of years, and, and, and then I had my opportunity to go back into uh, intelligence unit. I got back down there as a supervisor. Spent a couple, three years there, and, and uh, then uh, uh, I ended up, uh, oh, I think uh, there, there was a political shift at the top, and, and there was a highly desired job being a sergeant over the intelligence unit, and, and uh all of a sudden, I was out, so I go back to patrol, and, and I'm about 24 years in now, 23, 24 years in on the job, and you can retire at 25. And, and I mm-hmm. I knew that I was not going to get back down to the intelligence unit and into organized crime. And, and organized crime wasn't uh, – it, it wasn't what it used to be anyhow. And so uh, 
I thought, well, what else could I do? And and uh, I was talking to a guy one night, and, and he was talking about some other policeman that took the law school aptitude test or the LSAT, and he said, you know, he did pretty good on it. And I just had this visceral mm-hmm. feeling that went down through me. It's like, shit, I could do that. I could I could be a lawyer, I bet. Let me try that. So I went out and got me a, a, a practice test and then and, and practice LSAT, and I took it, and I did okay on it. I looked up what the medium score was and the medium GPA to be admitted to University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Law. And, and my GPA was good mm-hmm. uh, for my undergrad and, and uh, my LSAT was 150 and the medium was 155. So I thought, well, I can, a little bit of study, I can raise that up. And, and, and so I started down that path for the next year and a half. I studied, I took a whole bunch of practice LSATs and took a class on how to take them and and then I took it and got admitted, and I got my 25 years in so I could draw my pension, and I went to law school for the next three years. And, and, and then I've been practicing law ever since. Actually, I still practice I, mainly in the area of traffic tickets now. I I, I did a lot of more complicated things, and, and in particular in the area of consumer protection, and and um, mainly was suing buy here, pay here car dealers, but other, uh, oh, a, sure. a, a computer school uh, that, had ripped off a bunch of people and, and some things like that. And, and I liked that area, consumer protection. Partly I had a friend that had been done it for a long time, and he would give me all his cast-off cases, the little ones that he didn't want. And uh, so I had a steady stream of cases. And plus it was kind of, you know, I could still be like a policeman. I could still have a good guy and a bad guy. And uh, so I did that. And I've kind of cut back on that now. I'm mainly doing traffic tickets that are quick pops and a few wills and but then I got interested in uh, this filming uh, because of uh, the digitalization or the democratization of the uh, film industry, shall we say. Now, anybody practically, mm-hmm. especially a documentary, anybody can make a documentary movie if they really want to. And, and we'll put out a few hundred dollars for rudimentary equipment. Heck, you can do it now with your iPhone, actually, and uh, or an iPad. Right. And so I made one of my mom telling her life story just for fun. I, I didn't even think about going beyond that. That was the only thing I was going to do was film her telling her life story. And I I got it in a computer, and, and uh, we had a Mac at the time, and Mac had iMovie in it. And, and yeah, within iMovie, it, it was an editing, a real simple and easy-to-use editing machine. And I edited the clips together and, and uh, made a kind of a, you know, continuous over the arc of her life uh, story, and and it was kind of boring to watch. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew we had a lot of uh, old pictures, and so I got the pictures, and we had some old 8-millimeter video that I got digitalized, and, and uh, so then I put those in there and put a pan and a zoom on there like Ken Burns had taught everybody to do, and and um, uh, it was fun. It was a lot better, a lot more fun to watch, and, and it was, you know, the editing was pretty raw, and the... The quality of the sound wasn't that good. I had a pretty inexpensive camera, and, and uh, the the, light, the lighting, really, I look back at it now, and it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> the lighting was horrid. It was kind of grady. And, but, you know, <laughs> it, it was everybody thought it was great, of course. Everybody in the family thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever seen. And, and uh, so I don't know. You know, I, I just I like doing that. I like the, the creative outlet, I think, to make a story with film and still pictures and, and other B-roll and, and then put some music in it and make a story that's that's entertaining. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I got started doing the movies, and then I, I just kept it up. 
trying trying to do my own little projects. Uh, I found out about a volunteer uh, opportunity, for example, the uh, a local hospice was had a program called the Lifetime Legacy Program. They were looking for volunteers who had a camera and editing equipment mm-hmm. to go out and film a hospice patient telling their life story and, and then edit it together to a, a, a little documentary. And, and I did about eight or ten of those just to, you know, to kind of hone my skills on doing this and have have a little fun. Mm-hmm. I figured out how to make uh, a still and to make it look like it's 3D. And, and I saw a uh, I don't remember what I, I, you know, all the different training things you can get online and YouTube now. I I saw a, a right. little video about how you take a, a still shot and make it look like it's 3D. And, and I had Photoshop, and, and so I, I, made, I started putting those in there, and, and the people seemed to like them. And, and so that's kind of how I got started, and I, I decided to do my own documentary film, and and uh, uh, now I've made three of them. Actually, four of them all together. I've made four of them now. Right, now, the, exactly. Uh, the, the, wow. The first one, the, the, the people, uh, there's a free health clinic here in Kansas City, and uh, there is, there's a free health yep. clinic in most large cities, I found out, in, making of this, in the making of this. And they all were, most of them were formed uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, maybe. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, <laughs> And they were really, I, I, this one here in particular was formed to help uh, hippies get uh, treatment for gonorrhea mainly and, and sexually transmitted diseases. And, and then, of course, they were, come to find out, there was some uh, uh, spreading some diseases around needles. And, and, and that's how it started. Now, it ended up becoming a, a, a really a health problem. Uh, um, Oh, uh, I can't think of the word I want to say, but a place for poor people to get help, not not just the, the hippies oh, out of the oh. 60s. It started, was started by right, hippies right. And, and to help other hippies who were traveling around and living on the streets and living by their wits. But but it's now it's just uh, poor people now are the one are their clients and and uh, poor the poor working mainly and and non working too, but mm-hmm. mainly the poor working people who can't afford health insurance and you can get free health care there. Right. So I filmed that oh, they sure. wanted a really inexpensive uh, uh, little story of the founding of that clinic in 1971, and and they found out about me and uh, that I was doing this, and and so, you know, I knew they didn't have hardly money, so I did their story, and we got it put on the local uh, public TV station, and and people seemed to like oh. it, and I got a lot of compliments. So uh, so that that's what I did. My first one that was a uh, uh, my out of my own. Uh, had my own idea, and I did all the research, and and really basically did it all myself, except for a little bit of uh, sound work at the end, and and uh, had a lot of fun doing that. I, you know, the the uh, you know to find B-roll and find images, I was just going to do something historical. I didn't I didn't really have the time to like go out and and you know live with somebody or go to some unfolding ongoing incident or. I just wanted to go film a bunch of interviews and then go out and get some old pictures mm-hmm. and and make it into a, a that kind of a movie for the time that I had because I was I was practicing law, actually I was practicing quite a little bit then, and um, okay, so I, uh, my idea was uh, a civil war, you know, because you can find a lot of images uh, on that and and they're all in the mainly in the. Uh, 
public domain and have to worry about uh, uh, copyright and, and all that. And, and I know there's a lot of experts around about different Civil War things. And, and, and so I grew up in uh, rural Missouri, and, and I knew that there had been slaves in the county. And I thought, well, what was it like to be a slave in Missouri? You know what it's right. like to be. You've read about what it's like to be a slave in the Deep South on a big plantation, and you've seen all those images. Everybody's seen all those images of the, of you course. know, the uh, sure. drivers on the horseback and the whips, and and the, you know, the whole bunch of uh, cat slave cabins and and people out picking cotton. Well, they don't have any cotton up here in Missouri. Uh, maybe a little bit in the southern part <laughs> of the state, but it's it's just like being in the sure. South, anyhow, down along the Mississippi River. But in Northwest Missouri, it was you know there wasn't any cotton. And, and all along the Missouri River, uh, in the mid part of the state, there's no cotton. So, uh, you know, I, whenever you start going into something like, whenever I've started going into something like this, I find there's always an expert, and there's usually an academic or two that's written a book about it, and, and started talking to a kind of an academic uh, college professor friend of mine. He said, "Oh, he said you need to go talk to Diane Moody Burke over at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, in the history department." She knows all about that. So I get hold of her, and she says, "Well, yeah. I, I'm, matter of fact, I'm right in the middle of writing my uh, academic book. She didn't call it an academic book, but she's writing her book. She wanted to be published on that very subject." And uh, mm-hmm. so she agreed to an interview, and I sat down here in a cramped little office and turned on the camera, and, and we started talking about what it was like to be a slave in Missouri. And, and then she turned me on to somebody else, and, and uh, I asked around other. Um, uh, people in the State Historical Society, and they gave me another name, and I got another interview, and, and uh, I found uh, uh, some already recorded by actors. Uh, 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 there's something called the Missouri Slave Narratives. Every state, uh, former slaves in every state were interviewed in the 30s by unemployed mm-hmm. writers as part of the WPA uh, Works Project. Uh, administration for to put unemployed writers to work in, during the depression, and there's a and they published a book and they trans and they they taped them, but the, a lot of the tapes were lost. But they they transcribed them, and so there was a book of Missouri slave narratives, and there were some actors at a Lincoln University, it's a, a what we call a historically black college down in the middle part of the state, and they recorded a bunch of these slave narratives in in the vernacular and. And they were available for me to use. I was able to put those in there and and uh, let them tell the story of what it was like to be a slave and put it all together and, and did that. And people seemed to like it and showed it to the library and sold a few copies and, you know, take it around to other historical groups and show it and sell a few copies after. And then out of that, I did. Uh, I got stirred to do one on the Underground Railroad. You know, what's what happened to all these people? And uh, so I did one on the Underground Railroad out here in the West, and that was an unknown, hitherto unknown story. Uh, everybody knows about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad in the eastern part of the country, mm-hmm. but nobody knows about uh, Dr. John Doy or uh, uh, now all of a sudden I've lost the names of, of the other conductors. Uh, we had one really famous trip, John Brown, the famous John Brown who was hung for uh, – Right. Uh, the raid on the Arsenal and Harper's Ferry. He he took about twelve people up north too, and a pretty well documented and well known trip back in eighteen fifty nine. And uh, mm-hmm. there was a there was two, in every middle sized to bigger town on the western side of Kansas, right on the Missouri border, there were two or three people who were uh, members or 
in, involved with the Underground Railroad, and as Missouri slaves would get out, they would help get them north through Nebraska and across Iowa and into Chicago, where they had a large free black population. And again, I found a couple of people with academic books on it, interviewed them, and, and uh, did a little bit of reenactment stuff, and found a bunch of old documents and, and letters and had people read them like they were the person that riot wrote them and told stories from the Underground Railroad. And it ended up being freedom seeker stories from the Western Underground Railroad. And this is a little bit, the first wow. one, the last one was an hour documentary. This one was up to 75 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes. And and they had a little more success with it and and, um, and uh, started selling it to, to a distributor to colleges and universities and and uh, you know, I was able to get my money back out of pocket pretty quick with that. I even made a little bit now, not much. You know, <laughs> this is not something. If you go into this, hey. don't plan on getting rich. Uh, 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 you get the exactly. money back out of pocket. You better have fun along the way. You know, anytime you try something exactly. that uh, has a high rate of failure, you better have fun along the way, or don't do it. And and this movie right. business is tough, as you know. I know you're messing around with that stuff yourself it is tough yes. it's expensive yes. and time consuming and mm-hmm. difficult yeah. and 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 a crapshoot at best when you get done if you can actually get Correct. somebody to pay for it <laughs> that, that's the biggest oh thing no yeah and that is a lot you. of the challenge exactly and of course it has to have some relatability Yep. Yeah, and people have to want to watch it. They have to relate to it. They have to have an interest in it. And nowadays, it's like there's the advent of a thousand different ideas. Everybody is an indie artist with an idea, and I advocate that. But it's yeah. like they don't realize, like you're saying, the process and 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 things like that as far as that goes. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is because obviously you've delved into doing this documentary filmmaking. Um, who were some of your uh, mentors or some of your guides? Because I imagine if you walk into this world with little to no experience, you're wondering, how do I put a film together? What do I do? Um, how complex well, was that for you? Here, I, you know, I, I can share my experience, strength, and, and hope or no hope on this deal. Uh, I guess I have a little bit of hope. <laughs> I, uh, I've had some fun. But, uh, uh, you know, first thing I did was there's a local uh, film Club, the uh, independent was an independent film uh, association, IFC, independent film community, IFC they call it. And so I, I, they have a meeting yep. every Wednesday night. Most every major city has something like this. And so I joined that and got to know some people there. And and we did, you know, we would get together and we'd do short films and show them to each other. And we did a little short film uh, film festival and invite people in and and. Um, little five-minute and seven-minute films and try to come up with original ideas for films. And, and uh, um, you know, uh, I did that probably for a year uh, during the time I was making them for the uh, 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 hospice. And, and I was also doing these other little story mm-hmm. films with, with these other people. And, there, and, and, and always in those groups, there's people who do this for a living. But mainly right. people, especially in a town like Kansas City or, or you're outside of... of L.A. and Hollywood and maybe New York and, and maybe some people in Chicago, actually, they, they can't make money making narrative films or really even making documentaries. But they, they do a film commercial, right. and, and they may work on somebody else's documentary. We've got uh, uh, the guy that did the um, uh, um, uh, CSA, the story of uh, – he's a film professor at um, – uh, Lawrence, Kansas, at the University of Kansas. He's done uh, 
Ah. He's done a, the only good Indian, Indian, and uh, uh, and then he did the CSA or the Confederate States of America, and it's uh, kind of a spoof as what if right. the South had won the Civil War. Uh, Kevin Kevin Wilmot, and uh, and so okay. he's you know people out of his film worked on those films with him, and and they still live here in Kansas City, and again they work at TV stations, or or they just do it for fun and have their you know day job, or they. Uh, make their own little documentaries and or they film commercials or work for a ad agency or a, 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 a production studio that that does a, commercials and promo films for big companies and things like that. So you've got people with equipment okay. and expertise and and so I start learning from them and and you know they'll critique your films and uh, sometimes loan you equipment and sometimes, you know, work on your films with you or just be available to call and talk and ask questions or you're trying to figure out how to make Premier Pro do something that you don't know how to make it do and and or whatever your editing equipment is. But uh, you know, that was that that was, you know, those were main people and I and you know, out of that I made a couple of friends that, you know, to this day we still collaborate or we talk sure. about you know, techniques or equipment or how you do something and and, uh, uh, and and that kind of a thing. So that's 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 really you know I said how I did it to on you know no money and never going to film school. And you'll find people who went to film school there that that are working you know salesmen somewhere and still want to be in and around and and keep their fingers in and try to figure out how to do stuff, but. You know, like I said, it's a tough road to go. I mean, you know, look at snag films, how many documentary films there are on that. They're good. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't get into snag mm-hmm. films unless you achieve a certain bar. They're good. And there's hundreds and hundreds of them. Or look, look in your library, and the film section in your library, just hundreds of, of documentary films. And, and for every subject that right. there ever was. And, and now HBO even has their own documentary film back in an ESPN or 30 for 30 series. and so it's a and and those people got a million dollars or more. Uh, yes, I know. On those it's things. a little different for us. So it, it's it's tough. Now it, if it's go ahead. Did you by chance just so I understand this? No, that's okay. In terms of so that other people that are listening get a get a keen sense of this. Now, obviously, of course, you can be producer and director. Did you write all of the content? Did you work with a screenplay writer? How did the writing process come into play in terms of who handled that and how did that become an eventual film then? Well, with a, with a documentary film, the way I did them is I have a subject and I start finding experts and, and I just go out and sit them down and start asking them questions. And then, actually, the first two, I didn't even do transcripts. The, the last one, Gangland Wire, was a lot more interviews and a, and a lot more information than the first two, and I did have transcripts done. So I get the transcripts, and and I have some idea of how I want the story to go. And, and as I'm filming, I'll be, I'll be you know, sitting there doing the interviewing. Uh, most of the time, it would be me doing the interviewing and, and me turning the camera off and on and me making sure the lighting is good. And, <laughs> or uh, changing the lighting or whatever for the first two. The second one, I did hire a guy. He would always bring a a crew of at least one or two people, and and I'd just sit and interview, and they'd handle everything else. But but I'd know everything that they were saying, and I had some idea about what I wanted, and and then I'd just go back over the interviews, and and, uh, in the process of doing that, I'd figure out a starting point, and I'd 
basically let them tell the story. As a matter of fact, in the very first book about right. slave life in Missouri, it's titled Negroes to Hire, that I didn't even have a narrator. The the second one, I decided I found a local guy uh, who had a great voice, and, and he actually gave me the theme song for the Underground Railroad that he had written, and he's a local musician and actor. And and, and he was real reasonable, and, and uh, I hired him to do the narration, and then I wrote the narration. So I'll, I'll put the movie together on the timeline, and it'll be too long. And, and some of your interviews are... You need it to be, you know, you know, you want something said that they have to, they're saying. And, right, but it needs to be more succinct. Or it needs to have a better bridge to say that, but it needs to be said in a slightly different word. So then I would sit down, that's when the writing came in, and I would sit down and and write those bridges and, 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 and rewrite, write what I wanted to be said. Uh, uh, in a more succinct way than what the the, the person that was being interviewed. Because many times when we are being interviewed, we'll you know say way too many words to be in that for that kind of movie, and people's eyes will start glazing over when they when they say use too many words in a movie like that. So so that that was that was the writing part of it. And I did even more of that with the uh, the last in the Gangland Wire to uh, to get more in and, and have a more succinct and let that narrator tell a story as much as, but I really take it off of what my, uh, my interviewees say. So that was, that was the writing I do. I got that. Did you find it more challenging? Meaning like, let's take a look here, obviously, because what you're talking about is differently diverse things, as you know, because you know, you're delving in one field where you're talking about, Negroes, et cetera, and you're filming something along those lines, and then you're turning around, you're doing something like Gangland Wire, two completely separate entities, right. two completely separate <laughs> different subjects. Did you have more of a comfort level writing, per se, or even directing one versus the other, meaning were you more familiarized, more comfortable with one, or did it just come naturally to you? Well, I, I think, you know, the first two were uh, were connected, the Underground Railroad and Slave Life in Missouri. And, and so by the time I got done with the second one, I was really, really familiar with the subject and, and uh, uh, knew what I wanted my experts to say and, and could go to it pretty quickly. And, and, you know, there was a huge transition between the two. Uh, but the, you know, the, the, the third one... It's still storytelling. I still needed. I knew what the story was. I knew the story arc. And and uh, now, for example, in in uh, and it was different than the other two. The other two, there was not this story arc. There was mainly a mm-hmm. series of disparate stories of people's lives that had some right. tangential connection, especially Underground Railroad. But they were there was a series of different Underground Railroad people who who had stories, and I had their stories, and they connected with each other, but there was not a single story arc as opposed to Gangland Wire. There is, I wanted to have one long story arc, and, and I knew what that was. Right. Uh, and, and so I had to change gears from just telling these disparate, separate stories and kind of tie them together with the narration and, and uh, maybe some images and things that tied them together. You know, like, you know, somebody would take a, a, a 
an escaped slave from uh, Point Darrow, um, just on the Missouri River, to Lawrence, Kansas, to Grover's Barn, and then somebody else would come along and take him up to uh, Nebraska City, Nebraska, from Topeka, Kansas, or Lawrence. To, somebody else would take him from Lawrence to Topeka, and then they take. And so you'd tell that story, but then it was not really connected with another story or another person. Now, Gangland Wire, it was totally different from. Uh, the story standpoint and writing the story, if you will, or writing my narrative. And, and I was so, but I was so intimately familiar with that story because I'd lived most of it. And uh, I was a, I was part of the story back in the day. And, and I didn't put myself in the movie because my part of it was not that significant. Uh, one of my interviewees was a retired FBI agent. Now, he was a case agent, guys, that ended up catching him bringing the scam out of Las Vegas. So he lived it too. And, uh, right. So you know he, he's kind of my uh, Shelby Foot or my 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 anchor that has a, a distinctive accent that you go back to all the way through the movie from start to finish and and uh, main oh. storyteller. So so that's uh, that would be the difference in the two movies, and that's the gears that that's where I had to change gears and look at a little different, telling disparate stories to one long story arc and and deal with that. How do I do that? Because it's a really complicated. It's two story. It could have been two movies, but it needed to be told, in right. my opinion, in, in, at one time because one a set of series of events that weren't connected to Las Vegas led law enforcement to Las Vegas and the skim. Right. So I remember uh, that, because I saw the book and I saw that would be the difference. So I had to tell the story of the gang war in uh, Kansas City. Uh, first and then show mm-hmm. how how that led us to determining that they were bringing the skim uh, money out of, out of the Tropicana and the Stardust. Right. Which was, it was difficult. Which is, I imagine I so. Come, I mean, obviously, I, I, anytime you're I, taking that on. Yeah, I had to come up with a linchpin in that, a transition, a smooth transition. And there was one. I knew it before I even started. I knew what the the, the linchpin was. But it's just how much of the one story do you tell and how much of the second story do you tell and and how do you... Sure. And, 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 and the, the story flow... Uh, these things are are not and are not as simple as you know we would like for them to be because uh, you're dealing with human beings right. and uh, and human beings are messy and complicated and uh, they don't always do things in some you know linear fashion they may be jumping all over the place and, and so my my uh, stretch was to kind of make this into linear because I, I think. I like stories in a chronological, linear... That, that's why I like to hear a story in chronological, linear form. I don't like it when it jumps all around. I get confused and I get lost. And and, and some people, you know, there's filmmakers and there's authors that can do that. I understand that and, and, and hold you all the way through it. But I didn't think I was afraid I didn't have that, that kind of skill. And somebody didn't have the special effects and, and uh, the quality production wasn't going to have the production values that would that would help do those kinds of things. <laughs> and, and so uh, uh, right. it, it was difficult. I feel like I, I did. imagine so. And plus two. Oh, you did. And, and you took and tackled such a dynamic, like you're saying, it's such a dynamic 
story because there's so many elements, so many things that come into play when it comes up to that sort of thing. Um, so before we merge in that direction, I have a different question for you. If you looked at, because as you mentioned, you went to UMKC School of Law, so of course pursuing the law thing. On the other side of the fence, of course, you were a detective. Um, in terms of comparatively between the both of them, do you find more um, perplexity, excuse me, if I could talk today, or you mean if you look at one day, hands up, so it's breaking up. Say, say that again. Go ahead. Try oh, it. I'm sorry. Comparatively, if we look back on your career, meaning, of course, your uh, career in police police work versus obviously on the other side of the fence, you pursuing going to the school of law and becoming an attorney in terms of comparatively between those two, do you find yourself finding more purpose and more meaning or or one that's closer to your heart uh, occupation wise, or do you think you're going to continue on doing these sorts of documentaries and projects of that nature? Oh, you know, I I love this creative aspect. There, There was a certain amount of hope of creative uh, uh, using my creative side as a detective, you know, figured out a different way to do something, a, a way to investigate, to uh, to form it up into a story, to uh, 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 write a good report that would then convince your uh, uh, people that read it, and maybe all the way to your prosecutors of you know what the story you what you were trying to tell, and uh, uh, and so I like that part of it. There's a lot of the rest of it I. You know, it got pretty boring after a while, and it's kind of rote. And, and you know, it's police work is uh, is hours and hours and hours of boredom, followed by a few moments of sheer terror, and then hours and hours and hours of boredom. <laughs> and, uh, and and then and then late in your career, when you get up in your fifties and and you got twenty 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 five years on, you don't even get to get those few moments of sheer terror. <laughs> so you've got many oh. hours and hours of boredom unless unless you become Oh, like these, some of these guys would would with uh, you get into like the homicide unit as a sergeant, or maybe go up and be a captain. And, and but there's only a few of those jobs, and I never and I'd gone down that path of intelligence and organized crime, and and that's an even narrower path. And and you know it, it was so such a desired job that there's you know the the politics were never going to fall right for me to get back down there. You know, I was I gotcha. was a, 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 a commander's aide the last couple of years, and all I did was finish off my undergrad. I just went to school and and took care of his little business, and, okay. and uh, I was effectively retired. But I was still getting paid and doing the job and and going to school almost full time to finish my undergrad. So, so you know, and then being a lawyer, wow. I, I don't know. I I think I'd always felt like I'd uh, uh, never, as my mom used to say, you just don't. Uh, live up to your potential. And I think I probably had never really lived up to my potential, what I was capable of doing and with my mind. And, and uh, ah, uh, uh-huh. I, always, I always shake my head and I tell my wife I'm shaking my money maker here. And, and uh, so, uh, you know, to, learn, to make money and, and uh, earn a living with my head. And, and, you know, I never thought about the creative side of me. And I don't think I had time to. I don't think it was uh, – I didn't live in a world where that was a very high value uh, from out and out from an artistic standpoint. And, and, but when I got in this other world of practicing law and, and, you know, I found that I could make some pretty decent money without having to uh, spend a whole lot of time at it. But, mm-hmm. Are you there? Hello? Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I wasn't sure okay. if I lost you there. Hello? I thought I, thought I heard something. Yeah, I'm here. 
So uh, okay, go ahead. Yeah, and, and so I get into practicing law, and and I can make pretty decent money. Without spending a lot of time, and and that's when I got interested in this film thing. And then that the creative thing is just you know it's just overwhelming now. It's, uh, uh, that's all I really want to do, and, and I'll do a few traffic tickets to make some golf money and pay for my uh, my bad habit of making movies and, and other creative pursuits that don't really pay you maybe and. And uh, but other than that, I, that's what I want to do now, and 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 it's just and so what what's happening now? I've, I've made three documentary films. I'm I'm figured out how to to uh, sell them. Get a, and and I say sell them. It, it's really to me. I just want to educate people in an entertaining way. Uh, my family were always farmers, and then the women were teachers. Well, I never farmed. <laughs> and, and I think I, I've got a lot of teacher in me. And so I go out. I give talks to, uh, uh, you know, every Rotary Club and PEO and library in the area and, and other groups, uh, Optimus Clubs. Uh, 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 there's some older adults learning things here, and some of them you get paid and some of them you don't get paid, and I'll always try to sell a copy or two of the movie, and, and, uh, and I usually can. And, and uh, uh, just figuring out how to sell it, to sell them and, and give talks and, and, and and I like having an audience, so uh, it's uh, I like that applause when they get done, and they're always saying, "Oh yeah, that's great, man, that's really cool." And and, uh, uh, and so since then, now my my latest deal was I people were always asking me when I'd go around with this mob movie, they'd always ask me about well, and they did the same thing with the Underground Railroad. Well, how do you find these places where these things you're talking about happen? You know, I, I kind of remember that and. I was really young then, or, you know, uh, we never came over in the city back then, and, and uh, you know, I never went mm-hmm. down to the uh, River Key where the, a lot of the, the entertainment district, where a lot of the action happened in this movie. And uh, and, and so I thought, well, heck, uh, how about an app that would lead the, uh, the person on a tour? Uh, one friend of mine had... Uh, we serve on a board together, and the, the and and he said, uh, you know, Gary, one time he said, I just sat down and wrote down all the places where these different things happened, and then one night I just went out and me and a friend of mine we just went out and drove around and found those places, and it was a lot of fun. And I thought, well, you know, how about and people are asking me about where are these places? Where did Nick Savella live, or where did he live? And then the the rumor was there was tunnels between Nick's house and his brother. Corky's house, and and uh, there's people okay. that will well get they were they were getting mad at me when I'd say no, there's not, and I finally just quit saying that. I I just said you know there might be. Uh, I know there's not because we had people in there in search warrants. <laughs> they couldn't find them. They looked. <laughs> <laughs> and, right, and right. so uh, oh, no, uh, I understand. So everybody wants to find those places and see them, and and uh, and so I made an app. Uh, that uh, there's a thing called Appy Pie that, you know, you don't have to know coding. You just have to be able to drag and drop and have an idea and figure out the tools that they have in there. And there's a map function that you can put put in there and put an address in. And you you know, click on the map function. It'll take you right to uh, Google Maps and show you right, you know, plug a pin down and show exactly where you're going. And and uh, uh, then I'd have a, a just a... a text page and I put pictures of what the place looked like and maybe what it used to look like back in the day and and, and this is what happened, this is why this place is important and and then I'd hook, I'd make a little co- a clip from my video 
and and then I also got another guy's video that did some uh, a movie uh, a documentary about the old days in the 20s and 30s of organized crime in Kansas City and got little clips of his videos so people could go all the way back to Pendergast time when who was the like the, uh, the uh, who was the guy daily in Chicago was a political boss in the 30s and 20s and 40s and uh, of Kansas City and and he was hooked up with the organized with the mafia and, and uh, so you know I lead people from the early days to the modern days uh, uh, and and see video clips about it and and uh, uh, lead them all the way through so I bet I just started selling those those were real popular when I first I did a press release and and we sold like a hundred uh-huh. like the all next right. day. Uh, now it's kind of slowed down wow. since then. I think I'm going to have an article start come out in the Star. I think I've got about 300 of them out there now, and I've got it on a Kansas City Star is the local paper. And, uh, and I spent about an hour and a half okay. with this guy the other day, and he's going to do an article, kind of a human interest story on me, but also about the app, and 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 that yeah. ought to ramp yeah, it yeah. back up. And and I and I I had so much fun doing that. I did a second one on the Underground Railroad. Now that one I won't be able to sell so many up, but I did it just because I felt like it should be done, and and I'll support it for a year or two. And and it, it costs twenty five bucks a month to keep those things up and going. Yeah, I can I can do them for free, sure. but in order to get them to the iTunes Store and the Android Store and keep it supported, uh, uh, or you know you can access it, then it costs you twenty five dollars a month and. and uh, Gotcha. I'll do that for a while. Okay, to get access there. I got you. And, and, and my next thing, no, I, I think, is I'm going to follow along yeah. your lines and, and do a true crime stories podcast. Ooh. I'm going I'm I'm to go Me? record my first, first like, three segments tonight with a friend of mine that has a little studio. He has a, a, a internet oh, cool. radio show called The Big Dumb Fun Show, and he's going to help me out. We're going to He's going to be my kind of my co-host, and I'm just going to sit there and tell stories oh, about me. the mob in Kansas City. Or at least one. This first one will be five stories about the 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 mob war. Uh, see the mob that couldn't detonate the bomb, or the gang that couldn't detonate the bomb. I was trying to do a, a takeoff on Jimmy Breslin, the, the the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Well, this is the gang that couldn't detonate the bomb, and it's be a five segment story about that, and and just see how it goes. I'll put those oh. up for a while, and if I get any interest, why well, I've got two or three other stories in my mind that I can I can tell and get people to you know give me an interview and add that in. So uh, that's a long Absolutely. answer to a short question about your about uh, <laughs> changing life and and uh, creative things and and how, what is that like that's for okay. me? Well, that's, that's what it's fine. like. It's just a lot of fun to be able to do this stuff and again educate and entertain people and uh, uh, that's what I, I'm really having fun doing it. I imagine. Now, I wanted to mention to folks, in case they didn't know, of course, you are both a husband and a father in addition to the other things that you do. So I want to ask. Your family, in terms of your family's take, I mean, uh, the reaction to all of the success and all the various creative ventures that you're that you're going off and doing, how does that affect them? And, and, and well, uh, I don't. My 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 son, of course, he's grown up, works for the railroad, and lives down in Texas. Right. And, and, but he loves it. He he actually uh, he gave me he. he 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 probably he made more money in the first ten years of working than I did in my whole you know twenty five years. But he gave me some money to to help put that uh, our uh, gangland wire. And he he actually went out to Las Vegas and and uh, 
was uh, was my one of my uh, 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 gaffers or uh, <laughs> best boys or whatever. I flew the film guy out. Oh, cool. And, uh, we we interviewed Denny Griffin and and several other people out there in Las Vegas and and so Scott came out and he he's like he loves it he he actually had a uh, was a volunteer at a uh, and he was in Memphis with the railroad for the last eight or nine years and and he volunteer had a volunteer radio show on the, the local community radio station WVL on music of the eighties <laughs> so he, he has his own things that he likes to do and. And so he loves it. Cool. He, he he really has fun with it. I think I think my wife today she uh, 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 sometimes she gets a little nervous with this mob stuff. I know that because we live over here in the middle of the city, and and, uh, <laughs> and she hears I the conversations that I have with people. And, and it's, <laughs> so uh, oh, it's uh, I don't know, it's uh, it's okay. See, I I do feel kind of bad because I I I I don't know. I just I don't think about people who haven't lived the life I had and, and how they might have a different light on going out and, and uh, continually stirring this stuff up. Because I do, I get some, uh, so I do a blog on ganglandwire.com. I've got a website, www.ganglandwire.com, a little plug, and, and I'd blog on it. And I get some, some replies from this one particular family of mob people that they don't like what I'm doing. <laughs> so... Really? Now, that's it's just well, that that goes over well. pleasure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know. So uh, oh goodness gracious! I don't yeah. know. And then I, I've yeah. got a daughter yeah, here, and, and she thinks it's cool. She always goes whenever I have a big showing where there's going to be a lot of people. She always goes and helps sell the movies afterwards. So <laughs> she oh neat! It. How cool is that? That's cool that you can incorporate her like that. That's really neat, actually. Yeah. That is. That's awesome. Now well, I my, have another my granddaughter. Question. They I just roll their eyes. Oh, yeah. uh, I say my granddaughters, well, they just young, roll right, their though? eyes. <laughs> they don't care. Well, aren't they younger? <laughs> well, they're like, like okay, 11, he is what he is. 11, and... 12, and 16, so. <laughs> okay, I got it. That explains it right there. That I know, I Grandpa, that it again. <laughs> Aw, that's cute, though. It is. It's darling. I wanted to ask Any you ID. something different compared to... Oh, no, no. That's, um, I wanted to just touch base on that because you had started talking about it earlier in case that people didn't know. You used to shoot those, what they call lifetime legacy videos at North Shore Hospice, as I can recall. Um, and uh, I, I thought that was interesting because I'm like, I've never heard of what exactly a lifetime legacy video is because I'm like, well, let's throw it out to the audience in case, you know, that might be something that they might want to venture into because if I've never heard of it, maybe they have never either. So what exactly encompasses something like that? Well, that is a, that was an interesting program, and, and I can tell you, I know how it started. There was a woman who was a, was a volunteer coordinator for this one particular hospice, and uh, she had gone mm-hmm. to a, uh, a, a a convention of volunteer coordinators for other hospices around the country, and and somebody I think it was down in Sarasota, Florida, t- did a program, and they told about this this. Uh, program they had started that was so popular among their patients and the patients' families that uh, and, and they got I think they did a deal with a not a maybe it was a local community college film school or something they had some volunteers uh, that mm-hmm. were were filming people telling their life story and then they you know you get twenty five or thirty family photos it's, uh, they use everybody usually has at least that. 
and you throw those in there, and, right. and uh, you ask them what their favorite music is, and, and you'll throw that in there for them. You know, we're not really going to put that out on a movie screen. So, uh, you know, I think in theory, uh, the, under the black letter of the law, you probably shouldn't use that music, but, but we did. You know, somebody liked Elvis, well, we'd have a bunch of Elvis music in there. They were the only ones, in the family's the only ones that was ever going to see it, and... Uh, but uh, so we do that, and and so uh, uh, Ms. Hoffecker uh, came back to Kansas City, all fired up, and wanted to do that, and, and she found somebody pretty quick to do it, and uh, who had a little film company, and and they started doing it. But it's real time consuming is the problem, and and not everybody wants it. I've, we found out, but uh, quite a really? few of them did. There was there was enough. I probably was doing when I started doing them. I was probably doing one a month. Now they have a lot more patience than that, but uh, oh. uh, sometimes two a month, and and like I said, it's a little bit time consuming. But uh, you know, right. and and I found every one of them except one man. I had to I had to spend four hours with him. I had two two hour sessions, but everybody else, by this point in their life, uh, uh, they didn't have the energy to do anything, and, and so it was about oh, forty forty five minutes. Uh, I kind of developed a. a a series of questions that seemed to work pretty well and to stir their memories and, and uh, found out that if you, you, most people, awful lot of people have a story about the day they were born. And so, uh, like, uh, my story is my mom and dad, they lived out in the country, and they came down to Kansas City and spent the day and went to the movies, and then she had me, that was a Saturday afternoon, and she had me Sunday morning. And and the other story was the ladies said it was so cold they had to open the, uh, uh, had a wood-burning stove, and they had to get it on and then open some kind of a, under warming kind of a thing and they put her in that warming thing in the wood burning stove to keep her warm and and you know they and so you find series of questions or what chores did you have to do as a kid they all knew what chores they had to do as a kid and and when they start telling those stories they'd start talking about you know how they related to the family and tell more about their you know what they remember about their parents and what they remembered about when they were kids and you know tell a little bit about high school remember your first date or your first car and and that would always stir them and, and so you get 40 45 minutes in and and uh, uh, minimal amount of editing. Uh, you know, I only used one camera, and and, uh, and so I just get in there and edit out my questions and and uh, uh, put in their answers. It, it, the the biggest trick was try to get them to not just answer your question, to catch it in terms of well, I remember, <laughs> rather than just answering a question. So it was just, it would just be their voice on there. And, and then just throw those pictures in there and put some pans and zooms on them, and and uh, unless you want to get cute and That's make it. them in, into 3D, put a 3D effect on them, but uh, <laughs> and then start trying to edit in the music and you know bring it up, and bring it down, and get a little emotion going out of the music, and learn so much doing that uh, about how to use music to uh, make the story more interesting or to uh, accentuate an emotional particular point in the story, and and. Uh, um, I think I, t- I did have a few sound effects. I used a few sound effects too, and uh, when they were trying to experiment with that, so it's great for a, a, a filmmaker that's, that's trying to learn the, the tricks of the trade because you've got a live thing to do that you know that everybody's just happy that you do it. You know, nobody has any huge expectations. Right. And you make some mistakes, and but. Uh, you know, everybody's just so damn happy with what you got. So you can, you know, feel free to experiment and, 
and uh, and and it's a cool program. And if it, I think it died out, they had. Uh, hold on, I may have locked the back door. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it, That's okay. It may have. Uh, it died out because the volunteer coordinator uh, quit, and, and the next gal that came along, I could tell. I could tell that she just didn't care. She was not interested at all. It just made her job harder. <laughs> and I was I was getting busier and busier right at that point in time practicing law and and uh so I just kinda drifted off and then I started doing my own movies about that same time and, and I don't think it's I don't think it's going today. Gotcha. So that's kind of the story of the uh, lifetime legacy program. Aha. There you go. Now um Another question for you. I know that you had authored, uh, actually authored a book entitled John Brown and the Last Train, which I believe is oh, yeah. secondary. Yeah, you bet. So if you, I thought if you could just talk to the fans and followers of yours, just explain to them how that came into being and what the purpose of that particular project was all about. Well, it, it's a, it, what it was, it was a companion piece to the uh, Underground Railroad. Many times... I go. It was kind of a a, a a way to try to to monetize my efforts, and and uh, also I guess I always wanted to be an author. And I can say I've, I've written a book, and and that seems to people seem to think that's pretty cool. And uh, uh, exactly. but, uh, and but it it also was a story that I thought was really interesting, and 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 ought to be told, and, and people will find it interesting and entertaining, and tell a lot about history in an entertaining, interesting way. But I did not want to do an academic book. I don't have the credentials. Uh, uh, you know, I have a law degree, but uh, <laughs> but that didn't, we did a research and writing publisher paper, but uh, I did not I did not want to do that. That's way too much work, and and. Uh, too much pressure. I don't want anybody footnoting back to my work, and and so I did uh, a kind of a short, a young adult uh, historical fiction based on true events, and uh, and you know they've got they've got you can publish it's so easy to self publish now. Create space. I, I heard this I guy. I think I maybe saw it on Facebook. Somebody asked him a question. He's a film guy, and he had a little bit of success with a, a movie that he actually got a he got a deal and got it in all the Target stores. I mean, he was he was king of the roost here in Kansas City for the for the uh, out of the uh, IFC crowd, the the young people that trying to figure out how to earn a living uh, doing films, and and he was talking about well, he used mm-hmm. Create Space to. Uh, Put his movie out there onto Amazon.com because you always try to reach out outside of your geographic area. Here, I can reach people by giving talks and marking around. Maybe get an article in the paper or uh, get on the local news, and and that's a big help. But it doesn't get you outside of Kansas City. It doesn't get you outside of your right. your hometown. And uh, uh, so. You know, he talked about that and how that worked. I started investigating, and sure enough, I you know ended up putting my first movie, Negro's Diary, out there, and I'm still selling every, every Black History Month. I'll sell four or five copies through Amazon of people I would never touch, and I was selling quite a few at the start, but uh, then it kind of you know goes down after a while. So uh, also, just create space. They help you get it up on your movies up on Amazon. They also help you write books, and and they have templates and and uh, 
you can you can uh, pay them to design your interior. And I had a lot of pictures. I had hired an artist. Actually, found him down in Memphis. My son found him, and he was Adam Shaw's his name. He is a great guy too, and, and I used him in Gangland okay. Wire too. And and I used him to uh, uh, in the first in the Underground Railroad movie to tell this story, uh, uh, like almost like a graphic novel. And that's what he he's illustrated some graphic novels, and and he's just uh, he makes his living being an artist and. And and so I could just send him a series of panels on telling this story of John Brown raiding some Missouri farms and taking uh, 12 slaves north uh, on the Underground Railroad and, and all the different gun battles and and a baby was born and, and to the slaves uh, uh, got married in Iowa by some Quaker preacher up there and, and they ended up. Uh, getting helped by Alan Pinkerton in Chicago and West Dundee, uh, suburb of Chicago, and get around to Canada. And, and actually, that couple that got married were interviewed in 1895 about their trip up the Underground Railroad with John Brown. So, so I used Adam oh. to tell like a comic book form to tell that mm-hmm. story. And then I would, uh, as I'm having my different experts talk about that story for B-roll, I would pan and zoom over like these comic book pages of John Brown's and different events that happened. And, and so, uh, so then I did the same thing with gangland wire is, uh, I, I tell I, any time in the gang war here in Kansas city that there was not, could not be a camera there or nobody would ever take a picture of it, the event like a killing. Then I had him, uh, uh, depict the killing, uh, in a, a picture. So uh, oh. uh, I can't even forget. I don't even remember how we go with the book. So so I I had all these images of John Brown going up the Underground Railroad. So I had all these images to go in the book as well as my text. And I I, wow. and I wrote it from the stamp from the view of the two of the slaves that were on the trip, rather than from John Brown's voice or one of his men's voice. I wrote it from the viewpoint of the slaves that were on the trip and and. Uh, uh, and so, you know, that's why it's historical fiction. And so they tell the story and go on mm-hmm. as we go through and, and what happened to them. And, and then I use that as, I say, a companion piece to uh, uh, whenever I show my movie, then I would say, you know, you got the movie for sale and I also got this book. And so I'll sell some of the books and sell some of the movies. And, and then I've got the book in three different museum stores out here that are uh, uh, have to do with the Underground right. Railroad. So they, you know, they need replenished 10 or 15 right. of them every year. And uh, and now I've got, I got a guy that just got hold of me. He's wanting to do a program with uh, uh, primarily inner city kids on reading, kind of an after-school program. And, and he just bought, uh, uh, what he bought, 20 copies, uh, uh, 20 copies of it to go and use and so each kid can have that book and read it and then he wants and they're going to write a report about you know what about what they got out of the book and then they can keep the book at at the end of the program so uh uh, so you know there's always something to do with that stuff and it's a nice little companion piece to go with the movie too Uh, most uh a a lot of your local documentary filmmakers actually the Guy that the first guy that did one here in Kansas City, a guy named Terrence O'Malley, did one, and he told me, and he did a companion, more like a coffee table book, because he had a lot of images, and it was the story of a, an early dress manufacturer named Nellie Don, and 
and and that uh, Nellie Don, uh, her name was Nell Donnelly, and 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 her in her depression, her patterns and her fashions went nationwide, and and she was a pretty big deal in the fashion industry in the 30s, and so mm-hmm. he he told that story in the documentary film, and then he made a coffee table book with a lot of the images. He had images of the fashions and the factories and her and her family and all that, and, and he said he sold more copies of the book than he did the movie. Oh my goodness! I, I should have done something like that with Gangland Wire, but I just, I was, I just was done. Time I get it, got done with that, I just didn't have energy to do the the book, uh, some kind of a book too, and I didn't know exactly what kind of book I was gonna do. So, so sometimes you just poop out. I do. Exactly. Speaking of which, I want to, I want to touch base on this before. Before, I was going to say, before we get to Gangland, Gangland Wire, I wanted to mention this, of course, because I know you produced the film Negroes to Hire, which is slave life and cultures on antebellum Missouri farms, which, of course, was awarded Best Historical Documentary in 2011 by the Jackson County Historical Society. So I gather that. Um, tell me just a bit about the difference between making these two, obviously, because you've done Freedom Seekers, there's a John Brown thing, and then there's this. How do those three different projects, are they all meant to be parallel, or is there some unilateral difference between them? No, the, the first two were, were to be companions in a way, you know, the slave life and then how okay. did the slaves escape. But I, I'd always wanted to tell this other one, which was a totally separate deal. It, it's not a, a kind of a, a continuation of uh, in any way. It's a totally separate story. I'd always wanted to tell that story. And gotcha. So we always felt like Casino here in Kansas City, uh, we felt like the movie Casino in the book uh, was uh, – I don't know. No, the the book didn't miss the the, the real story. They just uh, Nick Nicholas Pledge just didn't really focus much on Kansas City, and so much of the um, reason that all that happened was because of what happened in Kansas City, and and the and the movie really didn't. The movie really kind of butchered up Kansas City and focused on uh, uh, Lefty or what's it, Ace Rothstein and, and right. uh, kind of the soap opera and, uh, uh, between him and Jerry and. I can't remember her name, Sharon Stone right. and Robert De Niro. It's easy for me to say Robert De Niro and Sharon Stone focus so much That's on okay. that soap opera and, and, uh, uh, and kind of didn't really say much about what was happening in Kansas City. And, and uh, you know, Pledgy came here. Actually, Pledgy was here's – a, here's a story for you. This dealing with, uh, with celebrities, and he's a good guy, and, and, and he's sincere. He spent a couple, three days here in Kansas City uh, with the FBI agent who's my – like I said, my Shelby Foot, Bill Owsley, and – and uh, uh, and so uh, he, uh, uh, I called him. Uh, I f- I figured out, you know, I knew he was married to Nora Ephraim at the time. You know, she's since deceased. But, oh, yeah. uh, and so uh, I I just Googled Nicholas Pledgey and I found an address on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. I thought, well, you know. If if they if he's married to her, if they lived anywhere, it'd be on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I know that much. I may be a country boy, but I know where those people live. So I just sent him a letter. I typed up a letter and sent it to him. And about three days later, I'm sitting here in my office, and the phone rings, and I, you know, Gary Jenkins. He said, uh, Gary. He said, this is this is Nick Pledgey. I said, Oh, well, hi, Nick. And, <laughs> he said, I got your letter, and he said, Oh my oh, gosh, he said, I'd be I'd be happy to help you with that. And I said, well, well, good. Oh, my gosh. I said, you know what, what I'd like is just to, you know, get you an interview. Nothing, you know, you don't have to go into anything real in-depth. The main thing is just to say that you're in there and, and uh, 
I got plenty of experts to tell the story and and uh, uh and so he said well sure that'd be fine and and so uh, uh he said you know uh, I'll be here in my office he says you can get to New York and, and I said okay I can get to New York so I bought me an airplane ticket, and I started making arrangements for a local camera guy, and, and I found one. And, and about three days before I was to fly in, he emails me, and he says, you know, I'm sorry. He said, I've got to go to Hollywood or Los Angeles, uh, uh, you know, Friday or whatever, and I was going to come in on the weekend and, and uh, uh, I think, filming Monday and, and uh, uh and uh, he said, "I can't be there. I'm sorry." And and I saw, you know, emailing back. And and you know, and in his, in fairness to him, he was in the middle of writing that Vegas and getting and producing that uh, TV show Vegas at the time. This was about a year and a half before that came out or two. And and so, so I got a hold of him. He said, "You know, about two weeks." And and so I got a hold of him about two weeks. And and in the meantime, I contracted this local film guy who's a you know, makes his living uh, uh, doing commercials and, 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 and really knows what he's doing much more than I do and lighting and 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 uh, sound and all that. And, and so he was going to use the DSLR cameras and and, uh, uh, and have, uh, you know, the separate uh, uh, audio track to, so you, the audio would be really good and then the film would be have a real film, more of a film look and have that depth of feel where it was kind of blurry in the back and the front would be in real sure. good focus. <laughs> and so uh, I get that, and so I get back holding Nick and he said, yeah, all right. He said, I'm here. He said, uh, okay, how about, you know, next Friday or whatever it was or two weeks from now on a Friday? And he said, yeah, okay, that'll be good. So, I buy myself a ticket, and I buy this guy a ticket, which I never got back. And, and about three days before, he said, oh, I'm sorry, i, I got to go to Los Angeles again. I just thanked him. I said, you know, I appreciate it. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later. And, uh, now, he did. I sent him a copy of it when I was done, and, and then I don't think he ever watched it uh, uh I, and then I saved an email about a week later or two weeks later and said, you know, I, I, I got a kind of a generic sentence that was kind of complimentary about the film, but not, you know, over the top or anything that would, uh, would, right. uh, that he, something he could deal with. And I said, you know, would it be okay if I attributed this quote to you? And, uh, and then I didn't hear from him for about a month or two months. I, I had to go ahead and, and wow. package it up and, and do all that. And about two months later, I get an email from him. He said, Gary said, I just found this. I'm sorry. He said, I guess I, I just got lost in all my other emails I get. He said, that's what you said. That's fine. Just You can attribute that to me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my brush with uh, the big boys. <laughs> ah, I gotcha. I understand. But, you know, what, so let's they, do that. They, just, you know, they really Go focused ahead. on that out there and left us Kansas City boys, you know, behind. And, and we did all the work. Right. We did all the grunt work here and got it going. Okay. I gotcha. Well, I mean, I have some questions relative to that. I just want to say, um, and this is gangland wire, of course, obviously, to those that are listening right. that may not know, of course, the uh, FBI uh, wiring, or all the wiretaps, or wiretaps, I should say, of course, tell the story of uh, how the mob families kind of gained and lost control of the casinos. Um, and obviously it was used to convict four different uh, four different bosses, if I'm not mistaken, Chicago, Cleveland, Kansas City, and Milwaukee. Um, 
So I guess, why don't you give us some backstory in terms of, kind of summarize for people that may not even heard of Gangland Wire, how exactly was such a feat accomplished? What exactly was entailed with that? Well, you know, it started with a, uh, a grassroots development of an entertainment district with quite a few restaurants, and, and the artists move in. This happens all over the country at uh, old buildings close to downtown, and, and this entrepreneur bought some of them up and, and cleaned them up and had the exposed brick walls and the old wood floors, and then he and he could rent them real cheap, and artists moved in, and, and a couple of restaurants moved in, and, and a couple of bars moved in, and, and young people in 1971, 72, all of us baby boomers were in our mid-20s, and, and start to go out and party and had some disposable income and and I went down there a lot and 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 it was a lot of fun it just kept going and going and and uh, it was a, a it it was like Fridays and Saturday nights it, it was just jam packed it was about a, a three block long with uh, maybe a one block east and west uh, line with different places uh, different clubs and restaurants and. And art galleries, and and it was just hopping, and and the mob guys. This is real close to city market, and and uh, Italians when they first came to the country, and probably every city, a mm-hmm. lot of their businesses were uh, fruits and vegetables, and they'd be around the city market, and, and that's the way it was here in Kansas City. And they always felt like they had a proprietary interest, and in, and that's where you know the mob guys. That's where the, the bosses kind of hung out around there, and and in a, uh, a housing area close to there, we call Little Italy or Columbus Park, and and uh, that's where they had their social club, the Northview Social Club, like Gotti's Rabbinite Social Club or the Bergen Fish and Hunt Club, right. and so they had the Northview Social Club, and they hung out there, and it was all in and around the city market on the east side, and then this development with a bunch of old abandoned buildings on the west side of the city market that had been fixed up and and uh, uh, a bunch of mob guys had a, a block long uh, strip of of clubs that were what we call go-go bars back in those days they had uh, uh, go-go dancers and and be what you'd call b-girls and when they'd get done dancing then they'd go under to the bar and get guys to buy them drinks and real expensive drinks and and uh uh, um, as one of my experts said, you know, they they thought the way you made money was to have fifty year old whores get get uh, uh, truck out of town truck drivers to buy watered down drinks for fifty year old whores, and and uh, and that's how the mobs were making their money in those bars. And they saw this action at the this new entertainment district called the River Key, and and so they wanted to move in down there and and they were getting kicked out because of a, a uh, urban renewal of the downtown area and they wanted to put a convention hotel where these clubs were and they were going to get a whole bunch of urban renewal money to move their clubs much more than they were worth okay and and, and so they wanted to move down to the river key and and there was a uh, one particular, one of the early bar owners and a real active guy at the River Key Merchants Association, or the Merchants Association of all the existing club owners, and and was close with the, the original developer of it. His name was Freddie Bonadonna, and, and his dad was a mob guy. He's not a mate member. He was what we call an associate, but he was a professional criminal underneath the Savella mob family. And, and uh, so okay. Freddie... 
he did not want these mob guys moving their bars down there because he knew it would destroy the area. It would bring in some bad elements okay. and, and that did not mix. And 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 so he used some political contacts he had to prevent liquor control from granting licenses for him to move down there. And, and they found out about it, and, and David, his dad, was sent to him with a express message that, you know, you got to help these people. You can't you can't resist him. You've got to help these people, and he wouldn't do it. But he pretended like he would do it, and then they figured out that he was he was actually ah. and but yet he was outside on the outside. He was saying, yeah, 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 we're, we're going to help you. We're going to help you get licenses down there. I you know I talked to so and so in the city government the other day, and they're going to make sure you get them. But then they weren't getting them, and then they they ended up getting them by some other political shenanigans that, that got pulled, and, and they ended up starting to move down there, and Freddie was still resisting them, and, and they found out that he'd been resisting them. And and they they told David again, you know, you he's got to stop. He's got to quit resisting this. And, and David said, you know, he ain't going to do it. He told me, he said, finally, just, you know, I, I'm sorry. I can't do anything about it. You know, what am I going to do? And 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 David's dad, uh, I mean, Freddie's dad, David Bonadonna, his boss, told him, he's a guy named Willie Comisano, he said, uh, you know, you tell him if he don't get out of our way, he could get hurt. And David said, you know, if you hurt my boy, you got to hurt me first. And, and uh, that was from a family member that, right. you know, told that as an anecdotal story, you know, after all this all kind of went down. They won't, nobody will talk to you at the time because they don't want to get involved and they don't blame mm-hmm. them. And, uh, uh, and so David ends up dead. When David ends up dead, they've got a contract on Freddie. He goes into hiding. They, uh, Freddie owns a building down there and he has a hundred thousand dollar building insurance policy on it and it's rented out to a couple of clubs and and those clubs are behind on the rent and uh he's not getting any money off of it and he's glad to close his place down he's hiding and and that building blows up it blows up so bad that there's nothing left of the building i mean there was nothing left and the huge headlines the next day is explosions of river key with this aerial photo and the newspaper reporter, a friend of mine, said, you know, you, I couldn't believe it, but the star hired a helicopter, the local newspaper, hired a helicopter to go and take that photo. They've never done anything like that before. There's this real dramatic photo, and, and everybody in the city and, at that point in time, especially, is reading the paper, and, and they see that. And, and uh, one of my interviewees was working down there at the time, and, and he said, you know, he said, the next day, he worked at a steak place down there. He said, the next day, nobody came. And the next day, nobody came. And then the next day, you know, maybe the next weekend, uh, maybe one or two people came. And then the next weekend after that, nobody was there. They just stopped, except for just a few kind of young people who are going back into some of the clubs drinking. But but the, the bulk of the people, the people that are really spending money, they just quit. They just stopped. And uh, matter of fact, uh, Chuck Haddix is this guy's name. He's kind of a local celebrity. He has a um, uh, called the Fish Fry. He has a blues show on public radio on Saturday night. So he tells a story about he's working the night that the explosion, and he's closing up the Victoria Street Station, which was a steakhouse, and he's a manager, and he's closing it up, and the best boys is going out in the parking lot to smoke some dope. And, and, and so mm-hmm. this, they hear this explosion, and, and the whole place shakes, and. 
and he said they hear this banging on the back door, and they go open the back door, and there's these two bus boys there, and he said they were smoking. And, and he said they were just scared to death. They were shaking, and, and a big refrigeration unit had crashed out. It almost hit their car. And, and he said they walked mm-hmm. in, and I said, man, that must have been some dynamite shit you were smoking out there. <laughs> and uh, so they uh, that was the end of the River Key. It was just the, the, the total end of it. It, it just everybody moved out because they didn't have any business, and a couple of strip clubs moved in, and they didn't even last. And and uh, then there was a retaliation murder, and and uh, uh, over uh, Johnny Green, who was one of Savella's compadres, who really wasn't part of the uh, killing David Bonadonna, but uh, somebody that's connected to the Bonadonnas killed him, and let everybody know that they killed him, and and then they but. Three days later, they went back and killed that guy who killed Johnny Green, and and I mean it was on then, and and there was a, and here's where the story got hard. At the same time, okay. there's another little mob faction of three brothers whose name is Spiro, S P E R O, are are wanting to move in on the Savellas operation. They are the Young Turks, and they want to move in. And so they start making some moves, and, and, and they rob a Savella bookie, and, and Savellas find out about it. And, and so then they're going after, you know, they, they've got, they still got one other guy to go. Freddie Bonadonna is, is in another state in the witness protection program, and, and he really doesn't have much he can testify to. A little bit, but not much. And and uh, but he's gone, and and you can't find him. And and these Spiral brothers are moving in, and and they end up uh, uh, the Savellas move on them, and and they uh, ambush him at a bar, and and kill one brother, and wound another, and and wound another, and paralyze him, and and so the brothers that are left alive then are start this active war back against the. The uh, Savella faction, and, and that's when the famous scene in the uh, 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 casino where they have, you can see the little bug, it's supposedly in the back of a, a store. Uh, and uh-huh. and uh, remember that? Everybody seems to remember that, and not remember it. Yeah. And yes. the, uh, the guy, Artipus Piscano, is, is, uh, would be the underboss here, Tuffy DeLuna was his name, uh, and the movie was Artie. Let's see, let me make sure I, I wrote that down here. Artie, Artie Piscano, uh, played by a guy named Benny Vila Vela, who's kind of a character actor in these kind of mafia things. And uh, Artie Piscano is complaining about the skim and, and uh, the problems in Las Vegas. And so, in reality, what we'd done is, is the Bureau, we had a club named the Villa Capri. And... and because of all this heat that was coming down on the River Key and and these different murders, they had they had one guy that came in and and told him enough that it helped him get a uh, an affidavit for a hidden microphone at the Villa Capri. And this guy said, you know, these guys will sit at the same table most ever Friday and Saturday night, and sometimes during the week. And and I have and he this guy himself had had discussions about bombing a club owner over in Kansas City, Kansas, just to send a message to him. And that's mm-hmm. why this guy came in. He had done okay. that. Didn't hurt anybody, but but he bombed his car just to send a message to him because they were trying to muscle in on his uh, strip club over in Kansas City, Kansas. 
and he he thought that he knew too much, and they were going to hit him next. And and uh, he was also kind of mixed up in this whole other Freddie Bonadonna deal in some manner, and and he we were trying to recruit him into to that, and I think the Spiros were trying to recruit him in, and, and so he came in and, and told them that, and, and we had done enough surveillances at the Villa Capri that, that we had probably a stack of reports that showed that on Fridays and Saturday nights that they were at that club, the Tuffy Luna or the Artie Toscano character and uh, 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 a couple of Sabella uh, guys, and, and, and we'd been in there a few times. They always sat at the same table in the back. So you put that together and you got an affidavit for a wiretap, right. a, a bug in this case. and. Right. and and so they right. they were, and we didn't hear anything about murder, and didn't hear anything about bombing, or didn't hear anything about any local events. But they started hearing little words like uh, Teamsters and, uh, you know, $2 million a month debt service and uh, Stardust and Lefty and Genius, who was Alan Glick, and uh, Jay Brown, uh, and they had that name real clear, and they call out and find out he's a, he's a lawyer, I think he's a partner of Oscar Goodman's also at the time, but he was a lawyer for the Stardust Argent Corporation that owned the Stardust and, and Glick. And, and uh, <clears throat> so they heard enough to know that there's something going on in Las Vegas and it has something to do with the Teamsters, and it's a lot of money. And so from that, you know, then you spin off to it's Tuffy and Luna talking and and, uh, and and how they really were able to spin off into phones was he said, you know, uh, I don't want to use the phone here and I got to get hold of that guy. I got to go find a phone. And so, you know, that tells you that that right there is enough to say, let's find Tuffy at some pay phones somewhere. And so you put a full court press mm-hmm. on Tuffy and, and find him at uh, a bank of pay phones at, at a, one of two different hotels uh, a couple of times, and, and and that's enough to get a wire now on those pay phones, and, and all you got to do is put him in and around the hotel, and then they can turn the, the, the recording, or they actually can start listening on the pay phones, and there's like a bank of phones, and you never knew which one he was going to be on. And they start picking up right. him. He had two different uh, hotels he was using, and, and he was talking to this guy named Joe Agosco who lived or, or lived, uh, lived in Las Vegas. But he he had already infiltrated the Tropicana, and they were just laying it out. They they felt so safe. I think Joe was going to a payphone, and Tuffy was at a payphone, and they felt safe, and they were just laying it out about the scam and Trump problems sure. with Lefty. And and if you remember in the movie the. Uh, uh, lefty or uh, Robert De Niro, he was in huge trouble with the Gaming right. Commission, and they were and and they were trying to get him to knock it off. And, and uh, Chicago, but Chicago really wasn't. It was Kansas City. Uh, uh, Nick and and Tuffy, Nick Savella, the boss in Kansas City's underboss, Tuffy. Tuffy was really given the job to oversee this, to go out there and talk to people if they needed to be talked to, because he went out and talked to Glick and, and told him uh, uh, that he had to sell the Stardust. And that's one thing they talked about on that very first night at that villa, that, that he was going to make a public uh, announcement. And, and uh, Tuffy said, he said, you know, he said, I talked to him and I told him, I said, boy, do whatever you fucking got to do, but make your announcement and get out of there. And so later on, they find when they uh, Alan Glick, who owns the Stardust and has got this big loan from the Teamsters to to buy it, 
when he comes in and he ends up testifying, he tells about how tough he did come out, and he did tell me to make a public announcement and sell the Stardust because they were tired of messing with me. And and then he read off the names of all my kids and where they went to school. And and so, uh, so you know, they were. Oh it was like they stepped into the middle of the story, and, and then started trying to figure right. it out. But uh, but they were just laying it out, and and uh, the De Niro character, or Lefty Rosenthal, was in all this trouble, and and. Uh, uh, he was uh, there was a uh, uh, going for the gaming commission and and remember there's one conversation I, see I got all the wiretap all the audio from the wiretaps that were put in as evidence uh, I can tell you that whole ah. story about how I got that uh, it's kind of an interesting story how you get that kind of thing because it's it, you can't always just find that kind of evidence or that kind of, of b roll stuff sure. and to use in your documentary and. And and so really in this right. movie in Gangland Wire, I'm able to tell the story of how a mafia family works out of their own mouths. For example, uh, one of these tapes, Nick Savelle is talking about uh, uh, Joe Agostos indicating that Carl Thomas, who was the uh, 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 kind of their uh, their front man in the Tropicana, he had worked at the Stardust when Lefty got kicked out of there for a while and then moved back in and, and Carl Thomas moves over to Tropicana and, and Lefty moves back into the Stardust and, and keeps the skim going and Carl Thomas has learned how to do the skim already and, and so uh, 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 oh god now I've lost my train of thought on that one um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> uh, they're, they're talking about uh, oh uh, Carl Thomas is giving uh, political contributions to the uh, uh, gubernatorial candidate, one of them, and he also is claiming that the new sheriff, John McCarthy, that he catered his victory party, and that and the Clark County sheriff, he catered his victory party, and he, and he was the largest single donor to his campaign. And so what Joe is indicating to Nick that, that you know, they own this guy. And in their, in their language, you know, we gave him a lot of money. Now, the guy did take it from Carl right. Thomas, but Carl Thomas was Mr. Clean. Uh, uh, one of my experts, a uh, uh, college professor out there, Mike Green, and, and, and he says, heck, he said, uh, you know, for a politician in, in Nevada to not take money from a uh, casino uh, executive would be like uh, a, a Michigan uh, camp political candidate not taking money from General Motors. I mean, that's, you know, they were the big corporations, sure. and that's where the political donations were, and so... And and John McCarthy, they didn't own him because he ended up hurting the the mob out there real bad. Is uh, the new sheriff that took over after Ralph Lamb, who didn't hurt him very bad. Uh, and uh, and so Nick Savella on a wiretap said, you know, uh, it sounds like you got that guy. He said, uh, now if anybody tells you, asks you about that guy, you tell him you don't have that guy. You save him for the big stuff something big. Don't just do every shit little deal that comes along. You just pretend like you don't even hardly know that guy and, and until we really need some. And, and so out of these wiretaps, you know, we were able to you really see how the mob worked at the time. You know, they didn't go out and strong arm. As a matter of fact, there was, uh, they heard about a plot that Lefty, Lefty told, uh, was telling people that the attorney general out there, a guy named Bob List, who was running for governor also, and, and actually won, but uh, uh, 
in the, during the, in the midst of this, but Bob List had brought the charges against Lefty to get him kicked out of the Stardust for good this last time and, and this last one. And this is the charges that he was uh, uh, that you saw in the movie Casino, where he went in front of the gaming board. And what's his name? Uh, Smothers, one of the Smothers brothers, played the yeah. head of the gaming board, who who was actually Harry Reid, Senator Harry Reid at the time. And uh, whose code name on the wires was Cleanface, Mr. Cleanface, and and uh, they talked about Cleanface or Clean, and, and uh, what's Cleanface going to do? And they had kind of a connection that was pretty close to him, I think, and so they're trying to figure out how he was going to jump on this Lefty Rosenthal uh, uh, decision. But uh, but the the Attorney General that was bringing the charges, Lefty was telling people he was going to get a prostitute to sign an affidavit that she had slept with uh, uh, List at a casino, and he'd been comped at the casino, and and uh, and then threatening with that if he didn't drop the charges against uh, uh, Lefty and back off from this case against his casino. Uh, well, he didn't have a casino license, but against him even being inside the casino, why uh, 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 he was going to release this... Uh, um, this statement from this whore, and, and, uh, and Nick Savella says, uh, uh, Duffy says, you know, man, I can't believe he'd have such a dumb brain as to do that, and, and Nick says, man, that stuff went out with high-button shoes, and, and so so then Nick starts talking about, i got to talk to Lefty myself. Well, I've got to talk to him, and so then he, and, and in the wiretaps, he said, I, you think I need to call Tutu? Well, Tutu was Joey Ayupa, the underboss in Chicago, and, and uh, so it kind of lets you know the hierarchy does, you know, uh, is Kansas City under Chicago, or are they, you know, parallel to Chicago? Uh, who's in charge here? And, and so uh, 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 it's like Chicago really, and Lefty is owned by Chicago because Nick feels like he probably ought to call Joy Iupa or Joy Doves before he ever talks to Lefty. And and we don't know if he mm-hmm. ever did or he didn't. He does end up talking to Lefty, and damn it, somebody, and that tape, did get put in as evidence, and that tape, I've got the transcript, but that tape did disappear. <laughs> Somebody absconded with that tape at some point in time, and, and I don't have that tape, so uh, that was a killer. I do have Nick talking to Tuffy DeLuna about his conversation with Lefty, but uh, about how he told him, basically he told him, cool it. His last words were, I told him, I said, just cool it, man. You're going to hurt a lot of people, and, and just cool it. So, uh uh, that it's really I, I don't that was uh, that's what some people don't like it because it's it's not so exciting but to me it was exciting to hear out of the mouth their right. own mouths this is how we work this is what we of do of course of course you betcha you bet yep. my goodness gracious we've we've already covered our time in the whole gamut my goodness gracious oh, good. time went just like that it's like amazing I, I don't want to forget to do something though let me just go through this rundown for folks that are listening um, i'm going to list off all the different places to find you um uh so let's listen to the rundown um i know that you of course have your own personal facebook page which is of course carrie jenkins um there's also right. a facebook page for gangland wire um Correct. you can also be found uh, website ganglandwire.com, also lifedocumentaries.com. Uh, there's an IMDb profile, also on YouTube, Correct. Amazon. Uh, your Twitter yep. handle is at J-E-N-K-S-L-A-W, and, of course, obviously iTunes, the application we were talking about. Any place else yeah, that people yeah. can find you? 
I think that's it, sort of coming to my house. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. I actually covered everything. My goodness. I'm impressed. You got I it have all. To say, I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm very, very, very impressed. Uh, I have to say that this has been an absolutely wonderful experience. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to kind of thank share you. your world with us for a little bit. Anytime at all. And, and feel free to come on back on the show at another point in time. And, okay. And continue I'll, to I'll, uh, and, and I, as I get into this you, podcasting thing, I'll I'll get back in touch with you. Definitely. You ring at me anytime that you need to. I'll be more than happy to help you out. And and I thank you, like I said, thank you for giving me all this extra time. And stay in touch here. All right, folks, that was Gary Jenkins. Thank you so much again to him, of course, and obviously, as always, a wonderful tip from my dear, wonderful friend, Susan Ferrito, who, of course, without her, which wouldn't have led to Paul, which wouldn't have led to this, it's interesting how one hand kind of helps the other hand in terms of meeting people. So I thank you both so much for this time. Once again, to the rundown, personal Facebook page, Gary Jenkins. There's also a Facebook page for Gangland Wire. The websites being ganglandwire.com, lifedocumentaries.com, an IMDb profile, YouTube, Amazon, iTunes, and, of course, the Twitter handle, again, is at J-E-N-K-S-L-A-W. So that takes care of Gary. Please make sure to support all of his endeavors, of course, besides Gangland Wire. He also has authored the book John Brown and the Last Train. Obviously, production of Freedom Seekers, Stories from the Western Underground Railroad, the film Negroes to Hire, Slave Life and Culture on Antebellum, Missouri Farms, and, of course, obviously, like we mentioned, uh, the LifeDocumentaries.com. You can find a bunch of interesting things on there. Um, before I get off of the air, I want to cover two very quick things, um, business things, I should say, and that's just on the side of my radio show. Tomorrow on Sin's Chat Corner, like I said, Wilson Ramirez, the actor, is going to be on at 1 o'clock Central Standard Time. Very excited to hear about all the various projects he's auditioned for and what he's up for, etc. So I'm very excited about that. Um, on the film side of things, Brazen Biker Babes, which keep in mind once again is a working title. We're still working on that one. Uh, still in the process of casting. Las Vegas is completed. And, of course, for Wisconsin, as I mentioned today, I've cast another biker that leaves me with room for two more female bikers to be hired onto the project. So if by chance anyone listening and is in Wisconsin happens to know of anyone, please send me a lead of information or contact information for any female bikers that you feel might easily fit into the project. I would greatly appreciate that. Um, To any of you who are listening and who are friends of mine, um, I've had just a whirlwind of support and kindness and uh, love showered upon me today, and for that I cannot thank you enough. Although I don't wish to publicly speak about what's happening in my life, um, I know that most of you know that it's been very challenging lately in the last 24 hours being very tumultuous. So I just want to say that I appreciate all of your support and I appreciate you being there and I hope that you will continue to do so. Um, I suspect these next few days will be very difficult. So um, I just want you all to know how much I'm thankful for you um, as an audience and fans, followers, and friends, of course. So thank you once again. Um, And that's it for this evening. Uh, We look forward to seeing you tomorrow on the show. Thanks.